podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. Before I reflect on a few of the, as usual, fairly dramatic developments here, there and everywhere, just a reminder that uh, on Monday evening, that's uh, July the 27th, the next live virtual show will be on via the King's Place website. The tickets are available there. And because it's the kind of end of the political year, I and all of us, hopefully, will be reflecting on the most extraordinary 12 months, I think, since 1945 of historical significance. We've got Brexit, a general election, which was bizarre in so many different ways. And then, of course, COVID, an extraordinary 12 months. So I'll be reflecting on that. There will be questions, a wider discussion, therefore, and our unreliable predictions. So that's, uh, you can get tickets now on the King's Place website. I hope uh, you can all tune in and we can reflect together and then go for a drink or have a drink during it. Yeah, that's it. That's the way to do it. Get a glass of wine or a beer or a coffee and then tune in at seven o'clock and I see you can get the tickets now. A lot has already been uh, written and broadcast on the Russian report, the excitement intensified by the long delay in publication. You can see why Johnson wanted to delay it, certainly before the general election, for lots of reasons, partly vindictiveness. It was... um, Dominic Grieve, who was chair of the Intelligence Committee when the report was compiled. Grieve had been appointed by, in effect, or under the Theresa May administration. Of course, the appointment of the chair is theoretically independent of government. Grieve had become an enemy of the Brexit evangelists in number 10 because he was against no deal and was, of course, expelled from the Conservative Party as a result. The delay was also uh, partly brought about because the report, in many ways, was condemning of government indifference to Russian interference, or possible Russian interference, because no one bothered to check. So, not surprisingly, on those grounds it was postponed. But in postponing the publication of a report, and this applies to any report, of course, Johnson intensified the interest. So the level of excitement when the report was launched was much greater than it would have been if it had happened uh, last autumn under Dominic Greaves' chairmanship uh, before the election. But of course, number 10, with their usual kind of childish machismo had their response ready and all the rest of it but I what was most interesting to me was the reaction of number 10 to the their failure to impose Chris Grayling as the chair of that intelligence committee it was a crude maneuver in itself in that it was so transparent they thought they could deal with this report and other reports by putting in a malleable chair. It stuck two fingers up to Dominic Grieve because Chris Grayling was involved as a cabinet minister in the Brexit campaign, pro-Brexit. And when they failed in this task, their immediate response was not to sort of accept what had happened, but to withdraw the whip from Julian Lewis, the new chair of the Intelligence Committee. It shows a vindictiveness, a fear of scrutiny that I think is unprecedented. Boris Johnson has been compared to 
Trump at times. But in fairness to Trump, he doesn't really avoid scrutiny that much. Partly it's unavoidable in the United States. People have pointed out that in the US, they've had the Mueller report into Russian interference. In the UK, nothing. And there are sort of checks and balances in the US that even a president as indifferent to the checks and balances as Trump cannot avoid. But Trump also holds press conferences regularly. And I saw an interview with him on Sunday. It's on YouTube. It's worth looking at if you've got spare 40 minutes. And that's part of it, actually. It lasted for 40 minutes. It was on Fox News, which is his kind of supportive channel. But it was a tough interview. And the questions were very intelligently framed and posed and, and, and done in a, in, a, in a way that didn't make the interviewer centre of the stage, as tends to happen in British politics when you get a probing interview. But they were intelligently framed and tough. And Trump had to deal with this for 40 minutes. He didn't do too badly, given the low bar he sets for intelligent political dialogue. But I, I don't think Johnson would do that. It's something deep in Johnson's psyche of a fear of scrutiny. I think it probably applies to his private life as well as his political career, where it's almost a form of genius. He's risen to the top without really being challenged at any point about his policies, his ideas, his approach to politics and life. And this was so reflected in the brutality of the number 10 response we know cummings is fueled he thinks he's a great philosopher but he's fueled largely by hate and anger it seems to me and so unsurprisingly he would have been up for chopping lewis's head off right away but lewis is pro-brexit he is a hawk on defense issues in a way that certainly parts of this government are. Not all, I suspect. I think there is an ambiguity about China and possibly even about Russia. But it's not as if the Intelligence Committee were electing Jeremy Corbyn as its chair. And this vindictiveness now extends to the Brexiteer Julian Lewis having been applied with a brutal crudity a year or so ago when the whip was removed from all those familiar revolutionaries like Philip Hammond and Ken Clark and people like that, all of whom lost the whip. And that to me is the most interesting dimension of the story. We don't know about Russian intervention. And by the way, even if it is proven to have happened, and we probably won't know because Johnson's fear of scrutiny will certainly apply. He's not going to stand up and say, okay, we'll investigate that 2016 referendum, which propelled me into number 10 Downing Street through a somewhat circuitous route. So we won't know. Uh, but even if it's proven to be the case, that referendum was going to be lost anyway, lost as in lost to those who uh, those of us who recognise the European Union isn't the great enemy that has imposed dastardly policies, especially in the so-called Red Wall constituencies, which voted for Johnson because of Brexit. That referendum was going to be lost the moment Cameron proposed it in a speech to Bloomberg in that coalition 
era, coalition era, by the way, kind of some people still see it as a great sort of centrist experiment. Um, it's, it's now being exposed, well, the Cameron Osborne wing of it, as hopelessly naive at best in relation to their uh, wooing of China in that period. But anyway, another and the biggest of the historic mistakes was the offer of the referendum, Cameron offering it on the assumption he would win. No prime minister is going to offer a referendum on the assumption they're going to lose. So he thought he was going to win. And he never was. I suspect if a referendum had been held probably from the mid-80s onwards, it would have been lost. There was a hostility building up in the newspapers. Thatcher became ex uh, increasingly strident, although never, ever advocating leaving the European Union when she was prime minister. Indeed, signed up to every treaty after a bit of kind of haranguing and strident hostility. But I kind of sense that the electorate, given the chance to kick what it considers to be the elite and to kick Europe, in inverted commas, a kind of fantasy villain, really, they were going to take it. And you can analyse to death the failings of the Remain campaign. You can convince yourself that Cummings was a strategic genius by coming up with phrases like take back control. And I suspect take all that out of the picture. And Britain would have voted to leave the European Union. It was the offer of the referendum. And the inevitably crude campaign that would follow that meant Britain was going to leave. And if Putin or his entourage interfered, they were wasting their time. They were going to get Brexit anyway. And isn't it revealing that alone, it was Russia, alone in Europe, and indeed at that point, the Western world, it was Russia who wanted Brexit. And I want to focus on Brexit a bit, if that's okay with all of you, because it seems to me that this fear of scrutiny that is a permanent feature of the Johnson era uh, applies particularly to Brexit. And in this, the climate of fear that number 10 has created by withdrawing the whip if anyone does anything that they don't like, or the hammering in the media through briefings against institutions they don't like, that fear has created an astonishing lack of scrutiny in this phase of the Brexit negotiations, the key phase, the future trading relationship. It was always a complete myth that uh, Johnson had an oven-ready uh, oven ready deal, put it in the microphone, oven-ready. It was one of the many weird things about that December election, which we will reflect on in that live King's Place virtual show on Monday night. But what is happening is astonishing. The best, well, it's not even the best now. There is no time for a deal of any significance with the UK's biggest trading partner. So the juxtaposition of deal versus no deal is an increasingly false one. 
So in other words, if in September Johnson emerges with a deal, it will be so shallow and flimsy and without substance, it will be close to a no deal. So the UK is stepping away from its biggest market, it has already recognised it's not going to get a trade deal with the United States by the time of the November election. And after that, who knows what the priorities will be, if it's a new President Biden or the existing uh, President Trump. And if it is the existing President Trump, though that looks less and less likely according to polls, you listen to the stand of the American trade negotiators and you realise right away the myth of the UK taking back control. They are, wholly understandably from their perspective, because that's what happens in trade deals, it's a deal. They are making demands about what they want in return for a deal, and it's the only way the UK will get a deal is to accept some of them, if not all of them. And the UK won't be taking back control. It will be accepting all kinds of things that are in the interests of the US. That's what happens with deals. It's rather sad in a way. I mean, darkly, comically sad that uh, ministers go around parading some new deal with New Zealand or, you know, these kind of small, small trading partners and turns its back on the European Union and fails in its early attempts to get a deal with the United States. Now, this approach from the shallow revolutionaries in number 10 should be being challenged at every level. It should be being challenged within the cabinet. It's really interesting when you think about it. Theresa May's withdrawal agreement as proposed, and by the way, it was so much better than what these shallow revolutionaries are pursuing. So much more in the interests of the UK than what Johnson signed up to. I don't think he quite realised what he had signed up to. But anyway, that's all in the past for all kinds of reasons, which again, I think will fascinate historians. She made no headway. But boy, were her proposals scrutinised by cabinet ministers. They triggered resignation after resignation, beginning, of course, with David Davis. And then Johnson pathetically felt he had to follow. Up until that point, he wasn't going to resign. But others did later on as well. And long meetings in which the cabinet scrutinised her propositions. And so, of course, famously did Parliament. They did very little else. Now, at this crucial, pivotal point in the negotiations, nothing. Uh, any cabinet minister who dared to question what was going on knew they would probably be sacked within five minutes. That's what happened with Julian Lewis. The moment number 10 heard, he was out, lost the whip within about 10 seconds. So at cabinet level, no scrutiny, no discussion. The last time this happened was in the build-up to the war in Iraq, where the cabinet, in awe of Tony Blair, the great election winner, assumed he knew what he was doing and supported him, with the honourable exception of Robin Cook, who resigned knowing full well what was going to unfold. He was the only one who dared to think about what was going to happen next. And this cabinet do not do so. They are, of course, mainly 
cabinet chosen because of their commitment to a revolutionary form of Brexit. But there are some who were Remainers in there who might feel, if they dare to think about it, that Britain is moving towards a cliff's edge, another one. Liz Truss was a really ardent Remainer in the referendum campaign. I bumped into her on the Monday night, I think it was, maybe the Tuesday night, the last live televised debate in the Brexit 2016 referendum. And she wasn't speaking in the debate, but she was there in the spin room afterwards, putting the case for Remain to journalists. And I was there as well. And I remember saying, I think it's going to be all right, Steve. I think we're going to win it. It will be fine. What a campaign. You know, the stakes are so high, etc. Well, now she's the ardent Brexiteer, pioneering trade deals, wanting to do one with the US, but not being able to do so as part of the chaotic jigsaw that is not forming a coherent pattern. So no scrutiny at cabinet level, no scrutiny in the Commons. There are now no weighty Tory dissenters, they've all been purged, and Labour and its leadership are too scared to raise it. They know it's a disaster area, but they feel a combination of things. One, they know those voters in the Northern Wall who supported the Tories out of Brexit, the Red Wall so-called, are watching and will disapprove at any hint that they are reviving the old debates about Brexit. They know, or Starmer knows, that in the House of Commons he can forensically dissect the craziness of what the number 10 Brexiteer entourage are doing, but he hasn't got the votes. It's not a hung parliament as it was before December, the, the December election, and he knows he could do a brilliant speech and be slaughtered in a Commons vote on Brexit, so sees little point in taking the electoral hit without any substantial progress in terms of getting a better Brexit. There is also an expedient thing, which is to let the Tories own it, and just to keep out of it, because it's going to be calamitous, and let them own it. This incidentally worked really well for Labour and Gordon Brown when he was Shadow Chancellor in 1992. He continued to support the British government and the UK's membership of the exchange rate mechanism when quite a few in the Labour Party were saying, look, we should be opposing this. It's causing huge economic damage. And sure enough, Britain was forced out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992 And even though Brown had been supportive of the membership, it was the government that got the complete hit when Britain left the exchange rate mechanism and Labour were ahead in the polls right up to the 97 election. And so that's part of the calculation that given they can't do anything in the House of Commons, let the Tories own it. When it goes badly, they will take the hit. And that is probably the case. I don't believe, by the way, that when the cliff edge emerges yet again that voters will mistake the chaos for the covid chaos because it will be different it will be lorries in crammed in a sort of huge never-ending car park in kent a nightmarish vision it will be tariffs it will be 
supply chains breaking down. It will be job losses, price rises, all the kind of things that will happen as a result of the totally misplaced machismo of the number 10 Brexit machine. And by the way, that's what it is. They view everything through the prism of Brexit. It is their cause. They think it is their triumph. And so that calculation might be right. But where I think the caution in the end from Labour would be unforgivable if it extends into the autumn is because of the scale of the damage. The exchange rate mechanism was a pretty seismic event, but is nothing in comparison with what is going to happen when Britain leaves with a flimsy deal or no deal at the end of this year. And there's a very good report, if you've got time again to have a look at it, from the Institute of Government showing that businesses are just not ready for it for all kinds of reasons. COVID, the continuing uncertainty about precisely what form this Brexit is going to take and all the rest of it. There's going to be chaos. And no doubt in number 10, they think there might be kind of fleeting disruption before Britain emerges as a great, I don't know, science fiction, L.A., high-tech island which uh, rules the world again. That won't happen either. But the chaos will not be fleeting. It will be longer than that. And so in a way, it's. I think Starmer could frame it in terms of patriotism. Uh, the, a favoured term in British politics these days, always an imprecise and vague term. But given that apparently Labour was seen as unpatriotic by a lot of the voters in the Red Wall, frame it in terms of patriotism. A patriotic duty to highlight the dangers to the British economy, to British jobs, to the cost of food and other products of the actions by this small group of shallow revolutionaries and make clear that you're not calling for Britain to rejoin the European Union but for a Brexit that works for Britain and in that patriotic framing I think there's a space in any way a duty to scrutinize and challenge because it's not going to happen anywhere else. And that, of course, is one of the reasons, along with the shallow revolutionaries' cack-handed handling of COVID in number 10, that in Scotland there is uh, growing evidence that support for independence is rising once again. And this is going to be one of the other big themes in the coming year or so. The Scottish parliamentary elections taking place next year. At the moment, the SNP look as if they're going to walk them. And you can understand why, really, looking at the capacity of England to elect these wacky governments at Westminster, you just think in the end, if you're in Scotland, let's get the hell out of this. Now, there are huge, huge issues implicit in any move towards independence, which we will look at at another time. You'll be relieved to hear. I'm not going to put that on you. But it is really interesting that amongst the many crises, self-inflicted on the whole, obviously not COVID, but the reaction to COVID, this particular version of Brexit, much the most extreme available, there could well be this constitutional crisis 
in which the SNP do well in the Scottish elections on a platform in which independence is absolutely central and a Westminster government refusing to grant that referendum. As I say, there are arguments to be made against independence, although who makes them is crucial. If Johnson goes up there, he will just fuel the support for independence, as Cameron discovered when he called that referendum on the assumption. By the way, that referendum, Cameron could have put in so many other protective layers to cement it, to cement a vote for the so-called status quo. He didn't bother. But that too is an interesting theme that will emerge. I think another theme that will emerge in the autumn is this relationship between Number 10 and the Parliamentary Conservative Party, because although MPs should feel very grateful to Johnson for the election victory, it was unquestionably a personal triumph and a strategic triumph for those around him. And some of the MPs sitting there wouldn't be there if it wasn't for that particular campaign and the way it was contested. But even so, the machismo in number 10, the sense that they are running a campaign based on the Brexit referendum on all fronts and that only they know how to do so and that the parliamentary party should be willing instruments to whatever their latest whims and ideas are, is just a misjudgment of parliamentary politics. And it's very interesting, Andrew Mitchell, the former cabinet minister and and a perceptive reader of politics, I did an interview with him the other week for the BBC and he, he said he was keeping a watching eye on this relationship and being aware that it could become more sulfurous, less so, depending, he called it his sulfur barometer, and this I think is going to develop into quite a dance because given that number 10 like spoilt children cannot tolerate or know how to manage dissent other than to obliterate it and punish the dissenters this is a recipe for intense tension in the months to come when some really tough decisions will have to be made on the economy, the continuing development of the COVID drama, hopefully addressed with a vaccine. I pick up great optimism on the vaccine front from many different sources. But um, let's see, if we don't get that, we're in the only thing that would be safe to do will be to listen to this podcast and me in a padded cell broadcasting it and you hopefully out running in fresh air while you're listening to it and being motivated to run even faster by listening to this specific podcast. Talking of which, if you've done a 5k listening to this running, you should have just about be finishing now unless you're really fast or how do I put this politely? Quite slow. Anyway, um, thanks very much for listening. As I say, King's Place, Monday, 7pm. Tickets available now, the live virtual show where we all reflect on a political year of which there has been none like it since the Second World War. So that will be a kind of laugh over a drink on Monday night. Thanks so much for listening to this Rock and Roll Politics podcast and I will see you in some shape or form next week. Thank you.